Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, it's Christina Wang, and welcome to the first installment of a great video series where we're going to be focusing on two disease states that we as retina specialists encounter all the time, and that those are diabetic macular edema and wet AMD. And in this first video, we are going to be focusing on the disease state wet AMD, and specifically, we'll be talking about current therapies that we utilize for these conditions, as well as some of the exciting upcoming therapeutics. And I'd like to thank Evolve Medical Education for sponsoring and providing this material today. Joining me today, I am delighted to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Diana Doe, who is Professor of Ophthalmology at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University, and also the Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs. Diana, welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. It's always a pleasure to join you, Christina. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to have this discussion with you, talking about two exciting therapeutics that are coming up through the pipeline, and those are Ferisimab and OPT302. But I thought that before we jumped into some of the data regarding those new agents, we'd start off by a real life case of yours. And this is a great patient, I think, to launch us into our discussion today because it highlights some of the unmet needs in this area of wet AMD, which is our focus today. So if you would, Diana, go ahead and take us through this case of the 71, 73-year-old man with wet AMD. This is a clinical case, and it's very familiar to probably a lot of retina specialists because this is a common scenario we see in our practice every day. This was a 73-year-old gentleman with a history of dry age-related macular degeneration who came in complaining of new decreased vision in his right eye. We could see on examination that there was elevation in the macula in the setting of his drusen. And on the corresponding OCT scan, we can see evidence of intraretinal fluid and a pigment epithelial detachment. His vision declined to 2100 at this visit. And so the question is, this person has new onset, wet age-related macular degeneration. And what is your treatment strategy, Christina, when you encounter these type of new patients? So Diana, when you see a patient like this, you assume they may have been followed for dry macular degeneration for a number of years, but clearly there is now exudation that's occurring. And it worries me when I see interretinal fluid, because we know that type of fluid is particularly damaging um, in these cases. And so I would initiate anti-VEGF therapy, which is what I'm assuming you did here. Is that right? Yes. Office-based intravitreal VEGF inhibitors have been the go-to standard of care for more than a decade. And certainly all of us would instigate that right away and be aggressive in order to prevent significant vision loss. Can I ask really quickly, Diana, you know, we are so dependent and um, on optical coherence tomography, OCT technology, because it's wonderful for the diagnosis and management of wet AMD today. What about fluorescein angiogram, you know, which is what we used to rely on in sort of categorizing the different types of CNV lesions. Do you still get an FA when you're making an initial diagnosis like this? I think fluorescein angiogram is still a very essential tool for retina specialists. It certainly helps to confirm the diagnosis and rule out any masquerading syndromes, which would have a different management strategy. In this patient, he did obtain a fluorescein angiogram. I don't show it in these images, but it also gives us a great way to track his progress in case the patient has a suboptimal response. 
Yeah, same. All right, take us through his treatment course here. Great. So we initiated the anti-VEGF therapy. We can see after the first injection, one month later, the vision still remains 2100. The intraretinal fluid is still present, although diminished a bit. I gave another injection of an anti-VEGF agent. After the second injection, the vision has improved to 2080. There's less intraretinal fluid. Christina, would you say this is a good response so far? Or would you have expected more uh, resolution of the fluid by now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that you're definitely trending in the right direction. So this I do find as an encouraging response. I'll tell you one thing, Diana, that worried me off the bat when you showed that initial OCT is you can see that there's a lot of atrophy already in the outer retina and ellipsoid zone layers. And when I see that, you know, I kind of plant in the back of my mind that it's important to tell the patient that our goal is to stabilize visual acuity and not to lose further visual acuity. If we gain anything, that will be sort of icing on the cake. But I always set those expectations early on so that they're not wondering why their vision isn't getting better. Even So we, we tell them that it's still working, that things are still stabilizing with these treatments. That's a great point. And that's a really good pickup on the imaging to notice those outer retinal changes. So after this second injection, we see there's still intraretinal fluid. Would you continue with monthly dosing right now? Or do you try to do a treat and extend even with the presence of intraretinal fluid? Yeah, that's a great question. I am definitely more conservative, especially after only three loading doses on a monthly basis. I would absolutely keep on treating in this case. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, I think that we are, we tend to be um, more aggressive. I think it's important to be that way when there's intraretinal fluid present. I think sometimes the literature is starting to show that perhaps some subretinal fluid can be tolerated but we don't know the details in terms of how much can be tolerated and when it's okay to tolerate. So I still also generally aim to treat to dry. But in this case, after only three loading injections with intraretinal fluid that's still present, but a positive response that we're seeing, I would continue monthly anti-VEGF. Is that what you did? And we can see that I did continue as you would with monthly treatment because I too like to be aggressive to eliminate as much fluid as possible. We can see at months four, five, and six, he received treatment. There is continued improvement. And now let's say he's at month six, vision's 2080. What would you do now, Christina? Do you start extending or would you still be very aggressive with monthly or bi-monthly treatment? Usually, Diana, when patients become dry, when there's no longer any fluid and I feel secure that all the interretinal fluid is, is now resolved, I will begin proposing a treat and extend regimen. Now, there are few exceptions to that, and that, is, that would be if a patient, for example, was monocular. We know that monthly fixed interval treatment brings about the best visual acuity results, but at the same time, I think it's important to take into account kind of real-life scenarios and constraints on the patients. Coming in every month for these injections is no easy task for them. They often need accompaniment to the clinic. They don't love getting the injections. I mean, who likes getting a needle in their eye? And so I think as a compromise in being able to preserve their, optimize their visual acuity, but also reduce the treatment burden as much as possible for them, I probably would start thinking about extending. And I usually do that by two-week increments. I think that's what the vast majority of retina specialists, both in the United States and worldwide like to do the more personalized treat and extend regimen. This highlights that there is an unmet need 
for the development of new medicines that can address both efficacy and durability. I'd like to talk to you about furisimab. This is the first bispecific antibody designed to inhibit both VEGFA and the angiopoietin-2 pathway. We can see that scientific studies clearly have associated both of these pathways in exudative retinal diseases. And inhibiting both might convey more advantage than just simply inhibiting VEGFA alone. What are your thoughts, Christina, on this novel bispecific antibody? I think it's exciting. And, and both of the molecules that you're going to talk about today, furisimab first, but then we're going to also talk about OPT302. What excites me about those is that we are looking now beyond just VEGF blockade. And we are lucky, we're very lucky to have four excellent agents that we use in the real world to treat wet macular degeneration. But the focus thus far has really been on blockade of VEGF-A. And, you know, we know, first of all, that patients need longer durability agents, as you alluded to, but we also need therapeutics that potentially could work better. And so by blocking an additional pathway, in this case, the TIE-2 pathway, we're activating that by blocking ANG-2, I'm really excited about what it's going to show. So tell us a little bit more about the molecule and the data. The pivotal phase three clinical trials in wet AMD, the Tanaya and Lucerne studies, the results were recently released. And besides meeting the primary endpoint, which is non-inferiority in visual acuity against a flibercept, the studies also showed some very compelling results. First, let's look at the study design. So furisimab, first was given with four loading doses at each monthly interval. Then at weeks 20 and 24, patients were assessed for disease activity based on visual acuity and OCT findings and clinical examination. If there was evidence of disease activity, patients could be put in either the every eight-week dosing interval, the every 12-week dosing interval, or be placed in the every 20-week dosing interval. The primary endpoint of the study will be against a flibercept and was a blended primary endpoint at weeks 40, 44, and 48. So this is a very unique study design. What are your thoughts about looking at disease activity assessments and then grouping patients into these different dosing intervals? I think it was an interesting design that they had here. And as we're seeing with the longer durability agents, these designs are a little bit different from what we're used to seeing in our fixed interval dosing, which has usually been monthly or Q8 weeks in the past. And I think this is really interesting, the way they did this, where you're assessing someone's disease activity and then placing them into an arm. And just to clarify, it's um, Q8, Q12, Q16, um, based on the week 20 and 24 disease activity assessment. And so... uh, you know, this is really interesting. The, the one point to make, I guess, is that there were no rescue injections in Tanaya and Lucerne. So once you were in your designated arm, you stayed there for the remainder of the uh, first year's data. Um, and what's interesting about this study is that at week 64, they're going, the, the patients that are treated with furisimab are going to be treated on a personalized treatment interval. So we'll get to learn a little bit more about how patients may shift between the different treatment interval regimens. Um, because right now, once you, you know, for example, if you were designated to be treated every eight weeks, you stayed that way, even though you may have had a chance to go to every 12 or every 16 and also vice versa. So um, tell us a little bit more. Great. 
And I think, as you said, this is a very unique design that many of these pivotal clinical trials are going to, because we're trying to assess one size doesn't fit all for each patient. And not every patient needs to be on fixed dosing regimens. And perhaps in the future, there will be this availability to have this blended dosing regimen where you can alternate between eight-week, 12-week, or 16-week dosing, uh, depending on your disease activity assessments. And of course, this is being compared to a flibercept on label, which is three loading doses, and then given every eight weeks, which looks at the durability of furisumab. And these are very important results because of the bispecifics potential for efficacy, but also durability in the fact that it inhibits both VEGFA and ANG2. The results show that about 45% of patients treated with furisumab could be placed in a Q16 week dosing interval through the first year. And this is after receiving four loading doses. In addition, about 32 to 34% of furisumab treated eyes were in the Q12 week dosing interval. And finally, about 20 to 22% of furisumab treated eyes were in the Q8 week dosing interval. What do you think about this data, Christina? Is it compelling? It's definitely compelling. I'm really excited. You know, when you think across some of our treat and extend studies, for example, like T-Rex AMD, you know, at that one year time point, less than half of patients were able to achieve a Q8 or longer treatment interval. So we know that the majority of patients are having to come in either monthly or every six weeks. And again, speaking to the treatment burden and the associated risks, albeit small, of intravitreal injections, I think it'd be great to have an agent that allows patients to go for longer in between injections. And so the fact that you're having almost 80% of the patients here in the uh, furisumab arm be able to reach at least a quarterly interval and some of those a Q16 week interval, which is a threshold we haven't seen in any of our um, approved drugs so far is very, very exciting. And I think what also excites us, if you're on these dosing intervals, does the vision get maintained? And we can see at this visual acuity graphs that patients had rapid improvements in their visual acuity during the loading phase of four monthly injections. And then when they were placed in their dosing regimens, either every eight, 12, or 16 weeks, those visual acuity benefits were sustained through one year of follow-up. This is very exciting too. Yeah, definitely. Let's look at the OCT. We always want to know if the agent, besides being durable, also has that effect on drying that excess retinal thickness. And we see it here. We see that rapid improvement in OCT retinal thickness during the loading phase of four injections. And then when patients are placed in their dosing intervals, those benefits are maintained. Do you think this is also further evidence that inhibiting that ANG2 pathway may provide some additional benefit? I think definitely it is. And, you know, one thing that I found reassuring about these graphs, especially with Tanaya, is, you, you know, when you're talking about longer durability agents, you almost expect kind of larger excursions in the anatomy where you have a sawtooth pattern. And we'll see that naturally with any bolus type of treatment. But I was actually pretty impressed at how mitigated the sawtooth patterns were here. So uh, I think that's definitely reassuring. Let me ask you, Diana, I mean, is there a way to tease out the ANG2 effect from the VEG-A effect? 
um, in, in furisumab? Is there a way to do that? I know we have animal studies that have shown that the combination of the two is better than either one alone, but can you tell our viewers a little bit, is there a way to distinguish that based on the data that we do have? I think right now, some of the data suggests that there may be this additional benefit, certainly the durability data with sure. a significant proportion of patients going Q12 or Q16 week. I think what will help us will be more long-term data in years two or even three and four if we're able to follow these patients long-term because we know by inhibiting VEGFA in three, four, five years of follow-up, unfortunately, many of those patients will lose vision over time. Mm -hmm. So perhaps by targeting another pathway, we can prevent that chronic vision loss over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all learning that inflammation is a very large part. It plays a role in the fibrosis that we sometimes will see at end stage, what AMD, and we will learn, I agree, uh, with the long-term data if we see any differences compared to some of our uh, anti-VEGF monotherapies. So now, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about these longer durability agents, at least recently, uh, some of the safety concerns that have arisen with, for example, brolicizumab, which was the latest FDA-approved agent for wet AMD, some of those uh, side effects and adverse events caught us a little bit by surprise. So I'd love to hear about the safety data that we saw with Tanaya and Lucerne. Of course, safety is paramount to any new drug development, and it was very reassuring to see that furisumab was safe and well-tolerated in these pivotal clinical trials. When we look at rates of adverse events or intraocular inflammation, those were very low. In fact, the rate of intraocular inflammation was around 2% in furisumab-treated eyes compared to 1.2% in aflibercept-treated eyes. And we look at the incidence of retinal vasculitis, which is a very serious ocular adverse event. There were no cases reported in either the furisumab group or the aflibercept group. So it indicates to us at this time, given the data, furisumab appears to be safe and well tolerated. So let me ask you, Diana, because this is reassuring and you see that the IOI rates are within 1% of each other between the two arms. And of course you do find comfort with that. And there were over 300 patients, right? In each of the arms in each of the trials. So there's a lot of patients here to, to base this on. But I think after the journey with some of our other agents, we've learned that perhaps the phase three safety data may not be enough, especially for rare events. And, you know, I'm just wondering when, you know, if and when furisumab is available to us and we have it in our hands, would you feel comfortable using it first line? Or would you want to see more sort of real world safety data before you um, consider using it for patients who are, for example, the patient you showed a new conversion to wet AMD? What's your, what's your thought on that? The best safety data is obviously when we have more patients treated. And that's why post-marketing surveillance is so important in these medicines. As you alluded to with the brolocizumab, the incidence of those severe retinal vasculitis and retinal artery occlusion were only first uncovered after it was on the market and in the hands of the retina specialists. Certainly with furisumab, we'll have to pay close attention if it is FDA approved because these rare events will only be detected once thousands of patients are treated. Given that fact, I still would be quite comfortable using frisimab. Usually I would first use it in patients who are prior treated anti-VEGF 
responders who I'm trying to, let's say, extend them further between their dosing intervals. And then once I feel comfortable treating those patients, I think I would use it in treatment naive patients. How about you? Yeah, I think I will take this exact same approach. I think we're always um, a little more shy when a new product is at you know in our hands for the very reasons that you suggest that with rare events, you really need those tens and hundreds of thousands of patients, I think, to really feel secure about the safety profiles. Not to mention using them in the real world is often a little bit different, right? Our practice patterns may not strictly reflect the way the trial was designed. But I think that this is going to be a very good candidate to be used first line eventually, especially after we're really secure and comfortable with the use and safety of, of this agent. So I totally agree. And, and my other question, Diana, before we move on to OPT302, because I want to make sure we have time to discuss that as well, is, you know, going back to the trial design and the disease activity assessment that occurred and the way they broke down the patients and found their treatment intervals, is that's an interesting way of thinking. It's new for us to think that way, right? Because most of us, the vast majority of us use either fixed interval dosing or treat and extend in the real world. If and when furisumab is available to you, do you think that you would follow that type of pattern where you'd be comfortable jumping right it into Q16 week after four loading doses? Or do you think that you might kind of follow the same pattern that you're using now, which is extending by two weeks more slowly? I think the trial design of furisumab is quite different and unique, and it is different from what we would use in clinical practice. First, the four loading doses is something that retina specialists aren't necessarily used to doing. Most of us will start, let's say, with three loading doses before trying to treat and extend. And the disease activity assessments based on visual acuity and actual changes in OCT are also different than clinical practice. I probably envision retina specialists using a blended approach where we're also using more of a treat and extend type criteria uh, using furisumab. I think we like to be creative and also individualize the treatment for each patient. What would you do? I totally agree. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, I think when you see trials like this, and um, that, that's what I generally try to emulate, but this is a little bit of a paradigm shift in finding the patient's interval and also with the four loading doses. So I probably, you're exactly right. I'll probably take a hybrid approach and uh, there will be interesting exchange, I think, amongst the community while we're going to continue to learn what works for us once we actually use this in a real world setting. And sometimes that's different, as we know, than, than what we see in the trials. So, well, thank you for that excellent summary. I think furisumab seems like an extremely promising agent and uh, one that can help us with both of the unmet needs that we discussed earlier, which are number one, increasing durability for our patients and allowing them to reduce their treatment burdens, and also be pot potentially also working in a more effective way with that ANGE2 blockade. But we're going to now talk about OPT302, which is another agent in the pipeline that has just started phase three trials. And this works in a unique way by blocking not VEGF-A, but VEGF-C and D. Diana, take us through this summary here. Yes, OPT302 is a unique intravitreal um, agent that blocks VEGF-C and D. Our current anti-VEGF agents only block VEGF-A. And studies have suggested that VEGF-C and D are also important players in exudative retinal vascular diseases. So it makes sense that by inhibiting VEGF-C and D, we might gain more benefit from these medicines. 
and OPT302 is looking to work in combination. That is, it'll be administered as a separate injection from our typical VEGF inhibitors that block VEGF-A. So the patient will require two injections during this clinical trial. What do you think about that? Two separate injections, one inhibiting VEGF-A, the other inhibiting VEGF-C and D. Well, I think it's definitely an interesting concept because we know that the VEGF-C and D signal are involved in angiogenesis and vascular permeability in an independent way from VEGF-A. And another point to make is that VEGF-C and VEGF-D are elevated when VEGF-A is inhibited. So we may be leaving things that are uncovered by solo anti-VEGF-A monotherapy. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to me. Now, the fact that it's two injections, I think is going to be something that we have to weigh carefully. It depends on sort of what the trade-off is going to be. What are those additional letters that we're going to gain? I know you're going to get to that soon, but you know, I know that the company is also looking at a potential co-formulation between OPT302 and anti-VEGF-A blockers. And that would be nice if we could combine them into one treatment. But I know so far from the safety data that the two injections seems to be well tolerated. Of course, it's an extra stick for the patient, which is a whole different story and something that also has to be considered. But tell us, how many letters did they gain that were extra, I guess, um, above and beyond? Can you tell us, walk us through the efficacy data? And we'll review their phase 2B study. And this study was very important because it showed the combination of OPT302 with ranibizumab resulted in superior visual acuity outcomes compared to monotherapy with ranibizumab. And the difference was about 3.4 letters. So the patient who received those two injections gained an additional 3.4 letters. And this was statistically significant. So it showed that perhaps blocking VEGF-CMD in conjunction with blocking VEGF-A could provide additional benefit. So this is very promising. What are your thoughts, Christina? Yeah, I definitely think it was great to see a superiority signal like that is impressive. And, um, you know, I know that for specific types of lesions, which I think you may cover in the next slide, there was an even greater visual acuity gain over ranibizumab monotherapy. So again, especially if they're able to combine this into a single injection, this is going to be a great option for patients as well to get them every additional letter that we can. That's very important. We can see that the benefits of this combination therapy were even more pronounced in patients who had a baseline lesion of minimally classic or occult. Those eyes gained 5.7 letters with this combination therapy compared to monotherapy with ranibizumab. So in clinical practice, we know we have patients with wet age-related macular degeneration who have suboptimal responses. And perhaps they need that additional VEGF C and D inhibition. What are your thoughts, Christina? No, I agree. I think traditionally our type one occult lesions are those that are a little bit more difficult to treat at times. And so when you, you know, I, I can think of a number of patients who I'm bringing in monthly and still aren't able to get dry. And in those patients, I think this will especially be beneficial. But it's interesting because I, I think you'll on the next slide tell us about the phase three trials that are just getting ramped up right now, but they're going to be taking in all comers, treatment naive patients 
but analyzing specifically the minimally classic and occult lesions first because of that signal, that additional signal that we saw in um, the, the previous slide that you just showed us. So yes, the phase three clinical trials are enrolling right now. And it's a very uh, interesting trial design. First trial is SURE, and this evaluates the combination of OPT302 with ranibizumab compared to ranibizumab monotherapy alone. And then the second sister clinical trial is the COAST study, which involves the combination of OPT302 with a flibercept compared to a flibercept monotherapy. And so both of these clinical trials will be looking for superiority in visual acuity. We mentioned earlier, Christina, superiority is a very high bar. Do you think that's the correct trial design? That's hard to say. Um, I know when you have um, agents that you're using in combination, that's those are the thresholds you have to reach and for, for regulatory purposes. And um, it's great that they're meeting it. We'll see from shore and coast what this shows in addition. But one thing I wanted to point out that I think is interesting about the design of these two trials, not only are they looking separately in two different trials in combination with ranibizumab and then in combination with a flibercept, which I think is smart. But if you take a look at those three arms in that efficacy phase, which essentially is the first year, you'll see that they're looking at different combinations of the treatment intervals as well. So they want to see in that light blue bar, you can see that they're using ranibizumab monthly and OPT302 initially monthly for three loading doses, but then they're gonna space it out to Q8 weeks. So it's also gonna tell us a lot about, you know, is anti-VEGF C and D necessary to be given as frequently, or can we space that out and reduce the, the burden from that um, injection? And, and how do patients do as a result of that? So it's gonna be interesting to see. What are your thoughts? Yes, I think it's a very exciting trial design because Patients want to have effective treatments, but we also need to address that burden of frequent injections. And certainly when we're giving two injections, because the combination of OPT302 with an anti-VEGF inhibitor, um, it would be great if we could space those out uh, even further. But I yeah. think this will be really exciting to see. I definitely agree. And, you know, I, I know we didn't cover in detail the safety data, but the safety seems to be pretty good. So one of the things that I was concerned about uh, when I first learned of this therapeutic is, well, if you're giving two injections, does that make the pressure spike, for example? And it seems to be overall well tolerated in patients. And in terms of IOI, which is everyone's favorite topic these days, uh, they were comparable between the ranibizumab monotherapy versus the combination arm between OPT302 and ranibizumab. They were actually within percentage point, actually a little bit higher, I believe, in, um, in the ranibizumab monotherapy arm. So that's also reassuring to see. And you're right, you know, anything that we can get additional efficacy from or additional durability is going to be promising and a great option for our patients. So thinking about OPT302, Diana, is the type of patient you think you might use this medication on? Would you, would you restrict it to sort of your type one occult CNV lesions, or do you think it can be used for all comers, or do we just need to wait for Shore and Coast to read out? <laughs> I think certainly we'll need to see the data from Shore and Coast, because that will give us uh, the best possible evidence on whether or not this additional second injection is beneficial to patients. If the phase three clinical trials mirror the phase 2b results, then that will be a great benefit, especially for those patients that have those pigment epithelial detachments, because as you mentioned, they are 
quite challenging to treat in clinical practice. So it'll be great to have another new weapon in our armamentarium to treat these exudative diseases. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Diana, for just beautifully covering two of the latest therapeutic um, agents that are in the pipeline, Ferizumab and OPT-302. I think your data really nicely shows that these two agents are very promising, that they can uh, offer potentially longer durability for our patients, which is which is a huge unmet, unmet need in the area of wet AMD, but that they also interestingly work in a novel way. They have different mechanisms of action than our current therapies have to offer. So we will see uh, what happens with time, and it'll be great to have more more tools in the toolbox, as you mentioned earlier, to choose from for our patients. I want to thank you very much for your time today and for joining us. Thank you again to Evolve Medical Education and take care. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.